and Ziploc that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, Now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke Who me, I merged from the crack Hey guys, Randy here uh, it's Quick news before we get into the show we had to ditch the Buck Club as a sponsor. Irreconcilable differences. But we've picked one up. This episode is going to be brought to you by Mizzen and Maine. I'll get into more of that a little bit later, but now for the show. Today's conversation is with the golf writer Michael Bamberger. His work has appeared in numerous forms and publications, including Golf.com, Golf Magazine, and Sports Illustrated. He's also the author of numerous books, including The Green Road Home, To the Lynx Land, The Swinger, co-authored with Alan Shipnook, and Men in Green. Our conversation today focuses on this latter work, Men in Green, which was the July selection for the Reading Room Book Club. Whether you've read the book or not, I think you'll find Michael very interesting and illuminating, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Michael, this book centers around a list that you compiled of 18 people. And you've separated them into nine living legends and nine secret legends. For those listeners who may not have had a chance to read the book yet, can you give a bit of context to how you came up with this list? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, it's nice to be uh, with you. And uh, I've only recently, and um, always behind in these sort of things, become aware of how influential no laying up is in the golf community. Uh so I'm delighted to reach a lot of people that I don't know if I've been uh, reaching in the past. So, uh, so uh, I thank you for having me. The uh, yes, the book is called Men in Green, and uh, and it's an investigation of uh, some of the lives of people on board in 1960 and started getting really interested in golf in the mid 70s. And uh, it's an effort to catch up with uh, some of the heroes uh, from from that period. And as you're just indicating, Phil, I've got uh, two lists of people that I want to see, uh, legends and secret legends. And the legends would be known to, you know, most of your listeners, including, you know, uh, Jack Nicholas and Tom Watson and Arnold Palmer and others of that level of fame. And then the secret legends are people that they might not know, like not Butch Harmon, but his kid brother, uh, Bill Harmon, um, a caddy, a very prominent caddy in the 60s to the 80s, named uh, his nickname was uh, Golf Ball. His real name was Golfus Hall, and a uh, very close friend of mine, Mike Donald, uh, uh, who traveled with me as we went around and see these people. He's on the secret legends list. So yeah, so there's so there's nine legends and nine secret legends, and then it becomes sort of a buddy road trip to uh, catch up with these people and uh, find out what they were thinking about then while they were doing it and what they're doing now and what they think now about what they were doing then. Is this a list you had been compiling for a while in your head, or was it something that kind of just came to you on a whim? It did. Uh, I guess it, subconsciously I probably was compiling it for a while, but consciously uh, it came to me all at once. I was, it was. I can tell you exactly when it was. It was the uh, Friday night, possibly the Saturday, but I think the Friday night, of the Ryder Cup that was at Medina uh, when Dave Slove was the captain the first time. And um, and I was out for dinner uh, by myself, uh, sometimes after these long days of uh, 
covering stuff. You just want a little bit of a break, or maybe nobody wanted to eat dinner with me. I can't recall. <laughs> More like the latter. And uh, I was in one of those restaurants where you know how they put out the white uh, piece of paper as your tablecloth, and the, sure. the waiter writes his the right well, waiter or waitress writes his or her name uh, upside down and backwards. How they do that, I don't know. Well, and then they give you crayons. Well, I just started writing down names on crayon with with crayons, and I and I had. Uh, and I had this list of, uh, of people and, um, this book, uh, would be known only to, to some listeners, the one I'm about to mention, there's a book called boys of summer, uh, by a man named Roger Kahn. And, uh, it's a book made, it's a tremendous bestseller probably in the seventies and it made a big impact on me. Uh, it's by a former, uh, baseball, New York baseball writer who covered the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers when Jackie Robinson, Gil Hodges and Duke Snyder and Pee Wee Reese and others were on it. And what he did was years later, go back and reconnect with those people and wrote a very moving book about, uh, about, Oh, their life in baseball and their life after baseball. And, uh, that was very much an inspiration for what I was trying to do as well. Gotcha. Uh, I'm sure. A lot of listeners probably aren't that familiar with your background in the game of golf. I was just hoping you could talk about that. You know, not only your introduction to the game, but you actually, you know, were a, a professional caddy for a time before obviously becoming a, a golf writer. Um, can you just, you know, maybe the, the brief version, fill us in on, sure. on your relationship well, with the game? I'm very, I'm very glad to tell it only because I think it's instructive of something that golf uh, could be doing. My family had no background in golf whatsoever. Uh, my parents were both born in Germany, and my dad in 27, and my mom in 31, Jewish family living in Hamburg, Germany, and left for this country uh, during the rise of uh, Hitler and, and Nazism in the, in, the, in the beginning of the Nazi period. Uh, so they were very fortunate to even get out of Germany when they did and, and come to the United States. Uh, my dad was an engineer um, uh, at Brookhaven National Lab in Long Island. My mom was a school teacher, and my brother and I were very interested in sports, uh, but golf was not part of it at all. And the reason I'm giving this preamble is because I think this next part is really relevant to this idea of you know quote growing the game in the United States. Mm-hmm. Our gym teacher at the you know the middle class uh, uh, junior middle school that I junior high school middle school that I went to. Um, was a golf buff, and uh, he brought in uh, irons and plastic mats and wiffle balls into gym class uh, and taught the taught the game. And uh, and I don't know if there were 15 kids or 20 kids in this class, but we were hitting balls up the plastic mats uh, toward backboards and trying to get it through the hoop and that sort of thing. And we were introduced to the game. And as everybody knows, has been introduced to the game. Some of the people getting introduced to the game are going to get a hook. Many are not, but some are. But you've got to be introduced to the game to know whether you've got the disposition or not for it, which, of course, is not everybody. The point being that I don't know why this approach is not more widely promoted by the PGA of America and the USGA and, and even the PGA Tour is to, uh, to make... Uh, to introduce golf in the uh, in the public schools, um, and it can be done in a very inexpensive way. And uh, anyway, um, I enjoy telling that story because one, I think you have application for literally millions of other people, and two, it changed my life. This this uh, 
this dedicated gym teacher, uh, Mr. Greenlee, uh, changed my life uh, because I did get bit by the golf bug, and uh, it's enriched every aspect of my life professionally and socially and athletically and everything else. Uh, so I was very, very uh, fortunate in that regard. Then I did caddy some as a kid at, uh, at a local uh, uh, golf course and uh, you know enjoyed making money like all kids do and enjoyed being around the adults and seeing how they behave. You can learn a lot by just shutting up and listening uh, and watching and seeing how people interact. Uh, so that was very valuable. And then uh, you were, you generously called me professional caddy. I was more like an amateur caddy. I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't have any particular uh, uh, talent for it. But, uh, but I, uh, and I went into caddying really as a way to learn something about uh, the professional game, the professional tours, and um and also to to write about it as well so i was really a caddy on the uh, on a tourist visa uh uh for two uh, stints uh, in 85 on the pga tour and then in 91 on the european tour but there were very significant periods because i did learn a lot about professional golf and i think i got to see the game through the eyes of of you know working class professionals guys you know trying to Stay on tour, uh, and uh, I've always been drawn to those people. Anyhow, there's a lot there, and I, I'd love to ask you about that. Maybe towards the end of our interview, um, about the macro state of the game, if you don't mind. Right now, though, kind of diving back into your book specifically, you mentioned Mike Donald as one of your secret legends, and he's also, I think, collaborator might be a good word to use uh, throughout the book. He, he accompanies you on many of the road trips and is there during many of the interviews. I was just hoping you can kind of give a bit of insight into who Mike is as a man and a golfer, and also what role he played in writing or editing the book. Did he have any role you know, aside from being with you on the road? That's a very insightful question, Phil. And, uh, and I, I haven't ever used the word collaborator, but I think that is probably the perfect word. Uh, uh, so for those, now, how familiar are you with Mike's uh, story, or, or would you have been before reading the book? Uh, would you have been aware of, of what he did in the game? Yeah, in, in all honesty, before reading the book, n no. He It was a name right. that it's like, oh, yeah, Mike Donald. I kind of know that name, but, yeah, unfamiliar. Right. I uh, uh, Some years ago, Mike and I were playing at the Bears Club, uh, Jack Nicholas's home, home club in uh, in South Florida, and we happened to see uh, Rory McIlroy there, and, um, and I've written some about Rory over the years, so you know I knew him well enough to say hi to him. And I introduced uh, Mike to Rory, and I could see Rory, uh, you know, was in his probably just in his early twenties, maybe mid twenties. Uh, like, kind of knew the name, but that's about that's about it. And uh, so when I subsequently saw him, I said to him, uh, trying to give a shorthand to describe who Mike was in the game, that he was Rocco Mediate before there was a Rocco Mediate. And by that I meant Rocco uh, famously went uh, ninety what. Two holes or three holes in that uh, in that 2008 uh, U.S. Yeah, Open. Yeah, 92, I want to say, but don't quote 92. me on that. Okay, so uh, so in, against Tiger Woods. Well, Mike did much much the same. He was he was in the 1990 U.S. Open at Medina. Uh, Hale Irwin uh, posted a score early um, on Sunday of the U.S. Open, and then Mike, who was about nine holes behind him, about two hours behind him. Uh, match that score 
and that led to an 18-hole Monday playoff when they still had 18-hole Monday playoffs, and they were still tied after uh, 18 holes. So here, you know, here's Hale Irwin trying for his third uh, U.S. Open. I think I have that correct, and um, yeah, yeah, I'm quite sure that is correct. Yeah, and and Mike Journeyman. Uh, uh, of course, trying to win his first major. Uh, so it was a little bit like where Tiger and Rocco were uh, years later. So Mike was still tied after 18 holes, and then uh, and then lost on the uh, on the 19th on the 19th hole. But Mike played more PGA Tour events than than any other player um, in the 1980s. I, I believe that's correct. And he made more cuts than any other uh, player uh, in the 1980s. And as Mike uh, humorously and often notes. He also missed more cuts than any other uh, player in, in the 1980s, but he, you know, he played the, he played week in and week out, and uh, he was a bachelor and he loved the life, and uh, he's very bright, intuitive person, has a keen understanding of people, and was on the uh, the tour policy board, uh, uh, and understood the inner workings of the tour, has tremendous insight into the uh, uh, to player caddy relationships player-player relationships, player-golf course relationships, just really one of the smartest people I know. And over the years, uh, in, in a variety of ways, we've become uh, uh, very close friends. So, yes, he very much became my uh, uh, wingman is really not the right word, uh, um, although I probably have used that word before. But he accompanied me on uh, on these tours, and he really became the, the both the reporting and the writing of the book. He became its secret weapon because... Well, quite a lot of different reasons, one of which is when Mike and I went to see subjects together, it wasn't just a reporter talking to a subject. It was a tour player who knew both the language of the conversation far better than I, but also uh, the subject knew they, they couldn't BS Mike because he had been there and he knew what it was all about. Uh, so having Mike sitting there with me brought on it, made it more candid and honest, made the subjects more candid and honest than they would have been otherwise. And, uh, so that changed the whole tenor of the book. Uh, I wrote the book, but Mike influenced, uh, it's, it's every page. So I think when you use the word collaborator, I think Phil, that's the perfect word. Okay. Um, your book, it was published in 2015. I believe I have that correct. Yeah, 2015. Yeah, so about three years on now, is there an interview or a scene that sticks with you the most? Yeah, I, I would say there really is, because when I think about the book, the one that I go back to is the interview with, with golf ball Dolphus Hall, the um, African-American caddy from Jackson, Mississippi, that uh, that Mike and I saw in a nursing home uh, when he was really on his last legs. And I guess what he had seen so much high level golf, he got it for Calvin Peep and uh, many others over the years. And uh, what Mike and I saw was both a um, tremendous insight into golf and to his own experience in the game and the role that he played in the game and gratitude for it all. And, um, and an appreciation for where he was then in his life and where he was now and an acceptance of it. Also a lot of, um, insight into uh the fleeting nature of life and uh, all this was described much less pretentiously than i just said it you know it was described in the most straightforward honest man-to-man way you could could imagine but uh yeah he, he made a that interview probably made the biggest impact on me i think on many readers as well well i was gonna say um we have a message board and so when i 
choose kind of the book of the month, we, we start a, a thread on the message board. And just like you said, I, I think the, uh, the, the chapters on, on golf ball certainly um, elicited the most reaction. And I, I think people, and myself included, that, that was really neat to, to read about. I, I think the, the one little anecdote that, that sticks with me is about uh, Raymond Floyd and his relationship with Raymond and specifically you know how golf ball talked about Raymond coming to his house and and staying the night and I just love how you say talking about that story if golf ball story was true it was incredible if it was not true but ball believed it that was something too uh, I I think that was one of my favorite lines fr- from your book well it's neat that you picked up on that um I mean it shows you how uh how our mind can play tricks on us and get us to believe the things that we needed and want to believe. But golf ball really believed that, that Raymond Floyd um, flew to Jackson Miss, I think from South Florida in, in his memory and came to his home uh, and spent the night and, uh, and got involved. I think they were celebrating a birthday in golf ball's memory of it. And it may or may not uh, have ever happened. Uh, I think, it probably didn't happen because I think had it happened, uh, I think Raymond would have said it happened. Yeah. And Raymond didn't say that. Um, but, you know, there, this is a an older man who was, you know, on a lot of medications. Uh, or I imagine, I'm sure he was on certain medications at that point. And choosing to believe something that made his life uh, uh, more enriching to him. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we all do that in our own way. At least we create these fantasies that, that we wish were true, even whether they are or not. Mm-hmm. Um, switching gears a little bit, I, I thought another really interesting nugget from your book. You said writing about Palmer and Nicholas and some of the other stars of that era uh, was much more meaningful than writing about Tiger Woods uh, has ever been. And I, I was just curious if you can expand on that thought, if, if you still believe that to be true, uh, kind of given the second life we're seeing with Tiger now? I would say I have had, uh, I would say my appreciation for Tiger has increased a lot uh, uh, since 15, or my sense of him has changed because I think we have seen, I think we've all seen the toll that his life and times has taken on his own body and mind. In 2015, let's think. Let me think for a minute of where he was in his life. Then, so he had not won a major since '08, but he won five times in 2013. And um, you know, I've been through uh, you know what I often call the uh, the stiletto parade uh, period of his life, uh, which you know I I gave him a wide berth for because you know I I've said this many times before, but the only person I think who had that whole period correct was Jack Nicholas who said, you know, it's his private life. It's none of my business, which is exactly how, how I felt about it. But so leaving that all aside, but the general sense I got from Tiger was, you know, he is the secretariat, uh, uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, uh, Will Chamberlain of our sport. In other words, you know, it's the most dominating athlete that, uh, that we've ever seen, even more so than, than Nicholas and, uh, and Hogan. But, and it's a very big uh, exception, I didn't want to say big, but it was a, it's a very big exception that he didn't engender much emotion on, for me because I felt he gave 
little to the public um, in the way of his interviews and the way of expressing his, his gratitude for what the game gave him. I felt that he took more everyone takes from the game and, and and people give in life the way that they think is appropriate. I didn't get that. I don't know. I just felt we had sort of a one ray relationship with, uh, with Tiger uh, at that point. I think since then, despite, and I'm not diminishing his greatness in any way. Uh, I mean, anyone who follows the game knows what I'm talking about winning a U.S. Open by 15, winning a Masters by 12, winning a British Open by 7, winning the Grand Slam, four consecutive majors, just, you know, the dominating, dominating uh, uh, schedule, uh, not schedule record that he, that he achieved. What I think we've seen since I wrote the book is we're starting to see the frailty of the man, the mental frailty, the physical frailty, uh, the fact that he's recognized as all human beings do eventually, not all, all, but you know, virtually all, that uh, to go through this life on an island uh, by yourself, you know, in isolation, is an unsatisfactory, ultimately unfulfilling way to go through life. And, um, and I think we've seen that Tiger has found that he needs the uh, the camaraderie that comes with the the team competition. That uh, without opponents to beat, his record really is is meaningless and the point there is that he's actually part of a community of golfers you know that goes back to you know young tom and old tom and certainly hogan and nicholas and palmer and watson and, and various others and he's part of that lineage and that's a very significant role my sense is that he has shown more understanding and appreciation for that now than he did uh when i wrote that in 2015. Boy, was that a long-winded answer. Um, no, I, I think that was a good answer. All right, thank you. <laughs> um, I, and I think, I, you know, I really liked your comparison of Tiger to Ted Williams in that each kind of gave up a bit of their humanity. I don't know for their greatness, but in conjunction with their greatness. And I, I think it's interesting the change that we're seeing in Tiger. Yeah, I, you know, now... Tiger is reticent to talk about this, and I can totally understand why. But I have to think that 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 arrest on Memorial Day of 2017, as awful as it was, had to be, I'm guessing, a significant turning point for him. Because here's a man who has so much discipline and so much control, and obviously on that night, things were out of control. And the chances, you know, it could have been a one-off, but it probably wasn't. And the whole world could see it, and there was no denying it. Uh, um, so everything really, if you're going to continue to go down that path, everything's in jeopardy. And he's too smart and caring a person to, uh, to let that happen. Um, and uh, so I think he's under no obligation to talk about this, of course, but I think there had to be a very significant uh, turning point in his life. Yeah. I, I think one of the questions that comes up most, speaking of Tiger, in, in relation to your book is, I, I think people are curious why he was not included with the living legends. Well, he wasn't one of the living legends because uh, that was really, I mean, he is a living legend. He's the ultimate living legend, possibly. But I, I was going for people that were significant to me in the 70s when I was first falling in love with the game, much the way Roger Kahn 
was going back to the Brooklyn Dodgers of the fifties when he was covering them for the, uh, you know, in, in for the uh, New York Health Tribune in, in the 1950s. So, yeah, he would Tiger would not have qualified by my own um, by my own definition. But I hope there's some person out there um, uh, who uh, you know 20 years from now when Tiger's you know more ready to discuss uh, his own life will uh, find a way to Tiger and um, and get him to talk about um, uh, what it was like to be Tiger at the height of his powers. I mean that would be great. But um, that was that wasn't my goal or role then. He was still he was still in the thick of it. Gotcha. Guys, Randy here real quick. I mentioned earlier, today's episode is brought to you by Mizzen in Maine. To be honest, I'm not really sure how this all came about. I suspect Tron was doing some shady uh, backroom dealings after he wore the shirts up at the BMW Charity Pro-Am in Greenville. Anyway, uh, he told me to do an ad read, so being the friend I am, I, I complied. Uh, what's crazy about it is Tron kind of wore their shirts on a lark, and they ended up actually looking really good on him. And more than that, he said they were actually really comfortable to play golf in. Kind of a almost like an athletic wear, uh, but it's a dress shirt. So imagine if they're comfortable to play golf in, they're probably comfortable to do just about anything you do in a dress shirt. Anyway, I uh, appreciate their support. Check them out if you'd like, com. And now back to the show. I think obviously one of the the big threads throughout your book is Arnold Palmer, and I, I think maybe lightning rod. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but but a very interesting um, anecdote is is the rules controversy involving Ken Venturi. And just quickly for any listeners again who haven't read the book, um, it's centered around the 1958 Masters, and Arnold Palmer got. Uh, probably a, a bad ruling and ended up playing two balls, but there was a question. Um, Ken Venturi maintained that he didn't play his second ball properly. And um, that's kind of the basis for a, a rules, like I said, a rules dispute that at least Ken harbored for the rest of his life. I, I'm curious if you got any blowback or criticism writing about that incident or, um, you know, if you've had any second thoughts in kind of how you handled that incident? Oh, no. Now, I mean, I feel very, uh, you know, I don't have any second thoughts at all. I feel, I feel very gratified uh, that I was able to delve into it um, as deeply as I could. Uh, and it, it's too detailed and cumbersome to go into every last detail sure. about it. But, Phil, you, you, you got the broad source exactly correct. Venturi and Arnold were exact contemporaries, and uh, Venturi uh, missed the chance to win the 56 Masters, in which he was competing as an amateur by shooting a, uh, a last round of 80. And then 58 was playing as a professional, was paired with, with Palmer on, on, on Sunday, and Palmer did get a bad ruling and did play the second ball. And at some point subsequent to that, Venturi got it in his head that Palmer had not played the second ball in accordance with the rules. But it's so cumbersome. But what actually happened was that there was a rule change long after that 58 Masters that changed the definition of how you're supposed to play a second ball under those circumstances. But if you go back to the rule, the only thing you can do is go back to the rule book as it existed in 58 when Palmer played it. And, uh, 
through the good offices of David Fay, the former uh, executive director of the USJ. He provided me with a copy of that uh, that rule book, which uh, I had never thought to do before that. Well, I had never really had the interest or the inclination to go that deep into it. It makes it very plain that Nicholas, uh, that excuse me, the Palmer uh, did proceed uh, uh, correctly. So it becomes interesting on so many different levels. But the most significant one is what was it about Venturi, who's one of my living legends on the list? What was it about Venturi that would not allow him to let go of this incident? And what that said about the Palmer Venturi relationship and what it said about Ken and his own view of himself. And here's a man who wound up in the Hall of Fame, had a 35-year career roughly with uh, CBS, won uh, uh, the the U.S. Open, and um, had a tremendously fulfilling uh, uh, career, um, but couldn't let go of this one thing. And what is it about our nature as human beings that instead of celebrating things that we have accomplished, we dwell and obsess on the things that we don't have. Um, so that's why it becomes uh, a running theme through the book is to try to uh, try to understand Ken better through this incident. But along the way, Arnold reveals himself as well because Arnold, in, in the moment, Arnold handled it really, I think, very appropriately because he did get a bad ruling and the rules did allow him to play a second ball. And uh, Bobby Jones, the the, uh, the president of the club at the point, he adjudicated it uh, right there on on that Sunday. He was in effect the the local rules committee, and then the uh, and then the rule book uh, backed up what Palmer did and what Jones did. But Arnold, uh, really, as he did his uh, whole life, he took the high road with Ken. He was confused why Ken. Uh, he thought he and Ken had a uh, had a friendship and an understanding of each other, and he was uh, he was confused as to uh, why Ken was so bitter, um, but always took the high road and never. And then when Ken died, which happened during the period when I was reporting uh, the book, uh, Arnold really wrote with exceptionally just a generous, candid tribute to Venturi um, as a man and as a golfer, while acknowledging his. Uh, his confusion over why Ken couldn't let this incident uh, go by. Yeah. I, I think you kind of lay out a psychological profile of Ken Venturi, which is, like you said, that that's kind of what, what interests me uh, the most and what I enjoy uh, reading and learning about people. And I, I, I think your book, um, you know, both good and bad, it does a really good job of that with uh, with Ken. One of your um, living legends, who I, I have to admit is more of a secret legend to me, and I imagine probably a secret legend to a lot of people, and, and some of that's based on how she chose to live her life after her golf career is Mickey Wright. Well, that's well said. She, You know, it's really funny. I don't know if we wrote this in the book or not. Uh I couldn't decide myself whether she was a living legend or a secret legend. Uh, she is a living legend, uh, but since nobody really knows anything about her, that makes her more of a, a secret legend. So um, I've never I've written about Mickey Wright a lot over the years, and I've talked to her uh, on the phone for hours, and we've had a great email 
correspondence, and I've never met her. And when I've generally suggested that maybe I could possibly meet her, she has very politely suggested that that will never happen. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so she's she's very much uh, she's very much both. And this is a woman, as far as I know, I'm pretty sure this is correct. The, the USGA uh, at its uh, museum and library in Fort Hills, they have rooms devoted to the life and times of Palmer, definitely, Nicholas, Hogan, and Mickey Wright. I think that's it. Mickey Wright would not attend the opening of the Mickey Wright room at the USGA headquarters in, in Fort Hills because uh, she just did not like that kind of attention. So... Now, it would be very easy to describe her as a recluse, and many have, and I probably have, but she's really not a recluse. Uh, she goes about her life in a semi-public way, as we all do, and, and you know, going to the post office, wherever it might be. It's not like she's a, some kind of shut-in. She's the opposite of that. But as she uh, says uh, of her own life, um, golf was a big part of it for a certain number of years, and she moved on, and she didn't want to get dragged back into it. And I mean, it's an extraordinary person, extraordinary in the sense that it's so uncommon that could just sort of shut the door like that. Um, but she did. So I consider myself extremely fortunate that she was willing to even talk to me on the phone and share with me things from her uh, from her life and her and her golfing life. Yeah, I, I was going to ask if your relationship had evolved to where you know you had met her, but but you answered that question. No, I haven't. No, uh, it would be an, it would be an honor to, but it, it, it's been an honor to get to know her uh, on on her terms uh, as well. And uh, for for listeners who uh, who don't know this, uh, if you if you want to see about the most beautiful golf swing you've ever seen in your life, just YouTube uh, Mickey Wright uh, Hogan one set of her. You know the best one I ever saw, man or woman. Uh, and it evolved over the years. Uh, I've seen uh, tapes of her early in her career at the height of her powers, but it's rhythmic, powerful, totally on plane. Uh, turn, turn, turn. I mean, it's just it's just one turn back and one turn through. And um, it's sort of like Byron Nelson meets Ernie Els, uh you might say, but it's more than that. It's it's her own thing. It's simple and powerful. It's an extraordinary swing, and it's an extraordinary uh, life that she led. I know exactly what I'm going to do when I hang up with you after this interview. <laughs> I, I am for sure going to look that up. Just one quick final note about, about Mickey Wright. She's, of course, uh, in the uh, Hall of Fame, and who's anyone who's been to the Hall of Fame knows this. Uh, like each player who's in the Hall of Fame has a, uh, or each person who's inducted into the Hall of Fame has his or own, her, his or her own locker, and Palmer's has cardigan sweaters and putters and drivers and bottles of wine. It's, you know, as I've written before, you know, there's enough stuff in there for a yard sale. Well, Mickey Wright has exactly one thing in her uh, in her locker uh, at the Hall of Fame in Augustine, and it's a copy of her book called "Play Golf the Right Way" by Mickey Wright. And uh, you know, that's sort of typical of her understated approach to everything. Gosh, that that is very interesting, um, I, Mike. If if you don't mind, just just a few more questions. Is that all right? No, okay. it's fine. Enjoying it. Okay, all right, all right. Um, I think a lot of your stories, or uh, and a lot of your characters are, um, you know, for instance, Billy Harmon, um, 
you know, Mike, Mike Donald getting his start, uh, Raymond Floyd, Lee Trevino. There's so many good stories. Even when Arnold Palmer was starting out and going around in a trailer with his wife, Winnie, uh, from tour stop to tour stop back in the, in the fifties, the, the, the tour was, was different, obviously back then. Uh, my, my question to you is, do you think the tour is as good now as it was then? Does it produce as many interesting people and interesting stories? Or is that something where, you know, the people that lived through the heyday and, and kind of came of age at certain times just fondly remember uh, certain periods more so than other? Right. Good question. People. People are always prejudiced in favor of the period when they were at the peak of their powers in any walk of life, uh, whether it's politics or sports or the arts or the plumbing business, whatever it might be. It was always better then. So now I'm very attached to that 70s period, uh, you know, because way beyond uh, Palmer's uh, still playing at a high level. And Nicholas and Watson and Crenshaw. We also have Manny Watkins and Hubert Green and David Graham and Hale Irwin and Jerry Payton. On and on you could go about the players and their character, uh, how their character got revealed through the kind of golf that they played. Uh, so I've got a romantic one to that. And I know that there are people, uh, teenagers and people in their 20s, who will have that same exact feeling that I have for Jordan and Justin and Dustin and Justin. And if you can keep all those names you know, <laughs> yeah. going in your head, you know, you're, you're, you're far quicker than I, but um, you know, and that's human nature and that's great. But I was going to say there has to be a, but <laughs> the tour was a tour in the 70s and it was a community of golfers that did sort of go around this country together um, and try to beat each other's brains out week after week uh, and did it with uh, a certain amount of character, I would say, that one does not see as prominently today, I don't think. Um, Now, as as a starting point to that discussion, they called the PGA Tour with a capital T, but in actual fact, it's not really a tour. It used to be a tour because you know you went up and down the California coast, then you went up and down the Florida coast, and you went to the deep south, moved your way up, um, you know, into the middle Atlantic states, and then to New England, little dips into up into the Midwest, etc. Uh, the point being was that you could actually uh, chart it out on a map, and you'd see a tour. Uh, now guys, uh, you know, they drop in and drop out as it suits them. Um, so you don't have that, uh, communal bond nearly the degree that you did. Having said that, when you hear, when you hear about, uh, uh, Jordan Spieth and, um, uh, Justin Thomas and Kevin Kistner and, and others all staying together in that same house at Carnoustie. Well, that tells you that uh, that that there still is, uh, you know, some strong strengths of both competition and camaraderie among the players, and uh, so it, there's probably more of it uh, than I realize. But I'm not as emotionally attached to it as I was when I was a teenager uh, in the '70s, uh, first falling 
in love with the game uh, uh, for the first time. You know, just as a quick, just as a quick uh, nod along those same lines. But I, I always find this very interesting. You can talk to anybody from any walk of life. You know, no matter how much they've achieved or not achieved uh, in their life, um, if they caddied as a kid, it is amazing the detail that they can tell you about who they caddied for, how they were paid, how they were treated, uh, because it's you know just the nature of uh, of young love, really. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and um, so I think that's the thing that we're that we're getting at here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, more broadly, you had mentioned kind of your introduction to the game uh, through school. Do you think, kind of drawing on your uh, wisdom and experience just being around the tour and the game of golf at large, do you think the, that golf is in a good place right now? And I think maybe my question is, can we separate the tour from that? It, it, it just seems like I, I don't know. Me personally, it's I, there's so much money in the tour. I, I don't know if it's I, I don't know if sustainable is the right word that comes to mind. I, I'm just not sure kind of what the what the future of the tour holds, and and I'm equally not sure kind of that relationship with with golf at at large. I, I was just curious, kind of your take on the game at large and, and the tour, maybe more specifically. Well, interesting question. I'll make no claim for wisdom, I'll make some claim for experience, just because I've been around the game for, for a while. I would say, people, I would urge it not to be worried. And the reason I would say that is because golf has always been a fringe sport. Um, and just to go back to my gym class, you know, let's say if there were, if 20 people were introduced to it uh, in that gym class, uh, the game uh up with maybe two or three of us but that's the nature of the game it's time consuming it's difficult there's a slow learning curve it's frustrating it's time consuming it can be expensive it doesn't have to be as expensive as as people often say but golf golf should be i think comfortable with the fact that it is essentially a fringe sport uh you know in the in the mid-1980s um uh jack nicholas you know who we all think of as the icon of icons he was obscure enough on the on the national stage that he could do it an ad for American Express, where the bit was, "Do you know me?" and um, and he would they would show pictures of Jack and he would describe his accomplishments, and then at the end they would it would show J W Nicholas um, on his American Express card. But the point is, nobody knew who he was, and nobody knows who Justin Thomas is. Now he's very well known in golf, but outside of golf, nobody could identify this guy really. Uh, and that's fine. That's just sort of the nature of, of our game. So, you know, the, the things that are the controversies of the day, does the ball go too far? Have they, uh, are the courses too short? Uh, uh, these discussions have been going on forever. And, uh, and the game has always, but in the game in the end has always been the, th- the thing that it was, which is a really peculiarly contemplative game by which that stationary ball sits there and you imply your mind to to get your body to do something that it, it can do, but it may or may not do at that moment. And that's true whether your name is, is Jordan Spieth or Phil or Michael or somebody who hasn't even played the game yet. 
that part of the game will not change and has not changed. And those challenges remain what they've, what they've always been. And it will always appeal to some people, but not to many. And, and that's okay. So the idea of, of quote, growing the game or not growing the game, it's very important for the, for the industry of golf. But I'm not particularly concerned about the industry of golf. I'm concerned about covering the game for those who have found their way to the game at whatever level they play. It, it, it doesn't matter. So I tend to be less worried than others about it. Um, now, having said that, I, because I think it's a great, beautiful game that will improve, you know, various aspects, if not every aspect of your life, I would love to see more people given the opportunity to be introduced to the game. That's a necessary starting point. Give, up, give the opportunity to people to be introduced to the game. That, I think, is a very significant thing, and that's something I think that all of us, each in our own way, can, uh, can find a way to, uh, to play a role, whether it's uh, introducing a friend or, or a child or somebody else to the game and seeing if it sticks, because if it does stick, you're going to find a way to uh, uh, have a social life and an athletic life and learn decorum, uh, and, and, you know, you and I both know the whole long list of, of how the game can enrich your life. Um, so that would be my long-winded answer to your good question. Uh, yeah, grow, the, the phrase grow the game kind of always makes me roll my eyes, and, and as you're you were talking and, and kind of ref, as I was reflecting on how you were introduced to the game, it almost seems like a better tagline should be to seed the game of golf. Where Yeah, that's you, beautiful. You know. That's very well said. That's, uh, no, <laughs> Maybe, that really is. Just, yeah. yeah. Give people a chance. You know, now, now just to take this conversation one more nuanced level, I mean, I, you know, as, as a white middle-aged man, uh, I would love to see go to golf courses and see a much broader community of golfers than I see. Uh, and I say that because it's a great game and it's improved my life and I think improved the lives of other people. Um, so I, I, you know, I think, I think that as a, as a starting point for quote, growing the game or to use your phrase season game, I think that is very, uh, I think that is very significant, and um, and uh, and I know there's a lot of efforts, but sometimes these efforts, they're so earnest, even though they're so well-meaning, they're so earnest as to be, uh, they've, they've zapped the fun out of it, uh, really. Um, yeah, it seems a bit contrived a lot of it times. Does. It does seem a bit contrived. I would totally agree with that. Well, well it's interesting, as you just said that, uh, and tying it kind of back into your book, I, I thought it was very curious uh, in your chapter about Sandy Tatum, one of your secret legends. He wrote the piece, uh, you know, projecting what the I believe twenty forty five U.S. Right. Open field might it's look about like. Transgender golfers being in the field. And- uh, yeah, yeah, and um, very curious that the USGA, I believe it was the USGA, spiked it. Um, yeah, they did f- from their program in, in twenty twelve. They couldn't handle the truth. They couldn't handle his verse. They couldn't handle his his vision of what the of what the future might look like. Yeah, that was that was a bit of a head scratcher. That was interesting. Yeah, it was. Uh, um, well, I, I, you've you've been very generous with your time, Michael. If if you would allow, um, this is kind of how I like to end 
each interview, I, I have just, it's kind of a two-part question. Um, and, and I think I know one of the answers to one of the parts of your questions because he's a secret legend. But I was going to ask you who your favorite golf writers, authors are, um, and, and perhaps some of the people that have influenced you. And then also, um, it, it can be golf or otherwise, are you reading anything interesting at the moment? Well, that's good. Is there a golf writer on the secret legends list? Well, uh, Jaime Diaz. Oh, of course, Jaime. Yes, you know, he's so much a friend of mine that I, I it doesn't immediately come to mind, but of course, Jaime. Uh, uh, Jaime's the best person in golf. Um, he's... Uh, uh, for those who don't know Jaime Diaz, uh, Jaime's been a, uh, a, a reporter and writer at uh, at Sports Illustrated, the New York Times, Golf Digest for long stints, and within the past couple of years has made a move, uh, a full-time move uh, to, uh, to Golf Channel where, where he's doing analysis now. Um, he writes with so much insight and so much heart and so much compassion. compassion. When I think of Jaime, the first thing I think of is him as a friend, which is why I was actually flummoxed there for a second. So you answered my question. Uh, this is a writer on the list, but then, but uh, and now, of course, he's quote more of a, probably a TV person than than a writer. Sure, but uh, he, but he made his bones in golf, playing the game at a at a pretty high level and writing about the game with tremendous insight. And some of your listeners would wouldn't know this, but the Hank Haney book about Tiger, the Big Miss, which I regard as as probably the most insightful book about Tiger by significant margin uh, uh, that there is was ghostwritten by Jaime. And I would say it would have been a much, much lesser book in the hands of any other writer. Uh, uh, what I'm trying to say is that Hank was very wise to, to, to choose Jaime uh, as the ghostwriter. Jaime's uh, been covering Tiger since he was a teenager, maybe uh, before that even. Um, anyway, so yes, when, when I'm with, when I'm with Jaime and we're talking about golf, I'm always learning something about the game uh, uh, from Jaime. And uh, and by that, I mean, you know, the the golfer and how the golfer thinks about the game, you know, uh, whether it's whether it's Johnny Miller or, you know, his father, the golfer or himself or his own insights into my game, whatever it might be. So Jaime is certainly one. When I was a kid, uh, would you are you would you be familiar with the name Herbert Warren Wind? Yes, I've mainly through other people is how I'm familiar right. with him. Right. Well, Herb Wind's you know uh, uh, was a longtime golf writer for Sports Illustrated and for the New Yorker magazine, and uh, and I read him as a kid and uh, uh, wrote with tremendous uh, uh, passion. But even more than that, just a deep, deep understanding and knowledge of the game, and uh, uh, and also played at a high level like Jaime, and uh, you know not a super high level, but you know good enough to have played in uh, competitive golf at a high level uh, as an amateur. And um, anyway, I got to know her uh, late in his life, and uh, that had a profound impact on me. Some of the readers, some of the listeners would know. The name Roger Angel, who's written about baseball for the New Yorker, is now in his mid late nineties, actually. But um, but Herb, Herb Wind covered golf much the way Roger Angel uh, uh, covered baseball. Uh, uh, Jenkins, uh, I find myself going to something called the SI Vault, um, 
on the internet and uh, reading old Jan Jenkins stories from the sixties and seventies and eighties, uh, and, uh, and just, uh, marveling at how easy he makes it look and, uh, sort of the casual way that he describes, uh, the golfers he's known often on a very, uh, intimate level. And then I, you know, but I read a lot out, the golf, which I know is not what you're asking me about here. Well, but, well no, uh, I no, I'm I'm personally curious if there are any, uh, you know, if you have a favorite author, if if you really have, you know, it, it's hard to say a favorite book, but one that you've read recently that kind of sticks with you. Well, I mean, I'm reading one right now that it's not even out yet. It'll be out in a little bit. It's called the Library Book by uh, Susan Orlean, uh who wrote the Orchid Thief. That was a turn to movie called Adaptation. It's about her love of libraries, and it's about the the great Los Angeles Central Library of Fire that I think was maybe in the in the late '80s that uh, she's investigating uh, the, the nature of the uh, of the uh, of, of the fire and what caused it. Uh, and uh, like all my favorite uh, nonfiction writing, um, there's an element of uh, detective work uh, to it. Uh, detective work in terms of understanding her own passion for for books and libraries and also uh, this actual uh, fire and, and what caused it and, and the uh, and the crime uh, the crime behind it. So uh, I find that uh, uh, very satisfying. I just read a um, a, a memoir of a, uh, a writer named Yorm, excuse me, a guitarist named Yorm Kalkinen, who was a uh, one of the, a, a guitarist for Jefferson Airplane and the founder of a band called Hot Tuna, uh, someone I've been listening to for you know 40 or so years, uh, just wrote a, uh, a memoir about his his life and times in uh, music. Uh, he would be an example of the secret legend. He's noted actually in the book uh, uh, as 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 uh, as a secret legend. In other words, many people would know the name Grace Flick from Jefferson Airplane, but many fewer would know the name Yorma Kalkman, uh from uh, uh, from Jefferson Airplane. Um, a few years ago, a book, uh, this is probably my favorite, if you can call it sports writing. Uh, I don't know that you can, but probably my favorite sports books I've ever, one of them anyway, that I've ever read is one called Barbarian Days by the writer William Finnegan, uh, writing about his life in surfing. Uh, that book won a uh, Pulitzer Prize. Uh, it took me a whole summer to read because I'm a slow, careful reader and uh, also because I was savoring uh, every word of it. So, yeah, I'm lucky to have the hobby. You know, my main hobbies are going to the movies, reading and uh, playing golf and, uh, you know, getting in the ocean when I can. So uh, I'm lucky that to have those hobbies that have sustained me for, for a long time now. Yeah, that's not bad. That that sounds like uh, that sounds like the life. Um, well, hey, I, I will wrap it there, Michael. I think, um, gosh, I didn't even really get a chance to ask you about Billy Harmon and uh, Neil Oxman. There's, well, there's so you, many I'll good characters quick, in your I'll book. I'll give you one quick note about Billy Harmon. Uh, I once asked him, there's a, Billy Harmon would be the study of a lifetime for any writer. Uh, he's so insightful into uh, into people. But, but here's here's one comment about Billy from uh, from his years of teaching. I said to Billy, you know, what? What's the thing that interests you uh, most about golf and golfers? That's not precisely it, but Griffin along those lines. And he said, the ball in the air. Um, now, Jaime subsequently told me that others have also said that, but I first time I ever heard it, maybe the only time I ever heard it was from Billy Harmon. But the ball in the air says so much because one is an instructor. If that ball's in the air, you can tell what the golfer is doing, and then you can work around that. 
But two, that ball in the air is filled with mystery because that ball's in the air and you don't know really what it's going to do. Uh, you know, it could ricochet off a clubhouse roof and go into a hole for a hole in one. That's happened many times. Uh, it could make a bad bounce and uh, take a good bounce like Tiger um, on the uh, 54th hole in that uh, open championship at uh, Carnoustie and stay uh, in play when it could have gone into that burn and change everything. Take a bad bounce and, and go out of bounds. So that ball in the air, it's just, I love the phrase because there's so much uh, mystery in it. But uh, anyway, uh, next time we'll talk about Neil Oxman and, and various other things uh, that you might be interested in. And uh, I really appreciate you having me. No, thank you. I, I certainly hope the next time is uh, sooner than later. Thank Good. you so much, Michael. You take care. Bye. All right. Bye. Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who 